Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello guys, gals and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no good Nick boyfriend. We know the answer is always yes. My guest this week is an Australian screenwriter and theatre maker who is also part of the growing group of women choosing to become mothers on their own terms using donor sperm. She recently authored a piece for The Good Weekend about that choice and what it was like to let go of the romanticized notions of how we have to find a man to do it. And not only was I completely moved by this piece, but I was also fist pumping frequently because as anyone who's listened to this podcast for a long time knows, Mm. I am firmly of the view that we need to divest motherhood from romantic (laughs) pursuits. I am very looking forward to discussing that with her today. Her name is Alexandra Collier. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So lovely to be here. It's my absolute pleasure, especially as uh, listeners won't know this, but I'm going to tell them right now. I organized it at the last minute, which is pretty (laughs) typical. (laughs) Well, you know, it's like mum life schedule, whatever. That's exactly right. How old is your child now? He is 14 months old. He's actually in daycare today, so, which is great, but sad, but great. He ran in there without a backward glance today, so I don't even have to feel any guilt anymore about dropping them off. Mm. That's one of those complicated contradictions of mothering, isn't it? That you want them to feel that way. You don't want them to feel bad when they go to childcare, but the, oh, when they run in there without a backward glance, you're like, okay, okay darling, um, I'm going. <laughs> bye, <laughs> darling. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I did feel that simultaneous sense of sadness and relief. But when he runs out to me, he's like ecstatic with joy and he literally has his both arms in the air and he's usually waving like a piece of food in each hand and he's like ah, ha, ha, like laughing like a maniac so as long as he's still happy to see me when I show up that'll make me feel good mm. yeah it never changes that sense of I mean my son's four and I still have that contradictory go off into the world but love me still and then just such joy when they see you at the end of the day as well anyway Obviously, we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours, just our mutual joy in our children. But what I would really love to talk about is how your path to motherhood came about. Well, it's been a long and 
complicated path. I thought that I was going to have a child with someone else, as most people do. And, you know, we've been told since we're little kids, little girls, I should say, that we're going to meet the person of our dreams and make a family with them. It's sort of inculcated in us, this idea that that will unfold. I was definitely thinking that I was on the path towards that happening and it became quite clear that my now ex-boyfriend wasn't ready to have children yet. And so I left that relationship sort of in my late 30s with this very present awareness that my fertility was waning and I felt like I was constantly being bombarded with these kind of wake-up calls about that, which, you know, is a whole complicated issue in itself. But I'd been watching other people go through IVF and reading me the riot act about freezing my eggs. And it took me a few years, but I decided that instead of waiting for the right person to come along or making a family with someone else, I was going to do it on my own. And I didn't even know that was a possibility, to be honest. I remember hearing Alyssa Shalaski on New York Sex Lives, which is a podcast that New York Magazine used to do. And she's a sex columnist and writer and she's just a badass and she had become a solo mum by choice. It was just one of those kind of light bulb moments where I thought, oh, my God, people actually do that. It was like no one had told me that that was even an option, which is crazy now because I know so many solo mums and obviously it's there's always been single mothers but people choosing to do it on their own with a sperm donor is a whole other thing that's relatively new especially in legal history in Australia so yeah I saw Alyssa and I heard her speak about it and she's really cool and she's you know she's sexy and she's funny and she kind of disproved this sort of holdover suspicion or notion that to be a single mother was somehow a failure or it was like only people who were dowdy spinsters went down that path or something, which is ridiculous, obviously. Or that if you pursue single motherhood, either by choice or happen to fall into it, that obviously like the people treat this as if this is a the backup plan somehow, because of course what we would aspire to is doing it with a man, even though we also culturally, which I want to talk about as well later, we also culturally know that marriage is bad for women's happiness and so many women out there living the quote-unquote dream with men raising children are just deeply traumatised and unhappy by the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was my reckoning as well is I started to think about relationships and how complicated they are and how fraught they are and how they're no guarantee of happiness, particularly lifelong happiness. And I think the stat is something like most people split up in the first two years of a child's life. So it's just really common that throwing a child into a relationship is kind of like throwing a bomb in there because suddenly you have diverging interests and, you know, it's like you have a new lover. Like there's a third person who's taking everyone's attention and it changes the dynamic. And so I was well aware that if I went into parenting with one of these people that I was dating sort of casually or had just started dating or was in an early relationship with that it was going to really test our budding relationship and that was going to be crazy. I'm not saying it can't work and it can't happen. I know people who found those situations quite quickly and somehow they roll into parenting and family life and they can be like wonderful situations. But I was just cognizant of the fact that there were alarm bells ringing already about some of these men and then to throw a baby into that as well was kind of terrifying. Mm. I could see the writing on the wall that it wouldn't last. It felt like kind of using someone to, (laughs) 
to have a child, which I wasn't comfortable doing. So I, I went down this path on my own. As you point out in your article as well, having a child with someone is basically resigning yourself to the fact that if you split up, you need to have contact with your ex forever. For the rest of your life. Which is fine if you have a great ex. It's fine if you've just not been able to make it work as a couple, which happens to a lot of people, and then you can co-parent really successfully and really lovingly and with respect towards each other. That's fine. But, you know, some of the stories that we know exist, the realities that a lot of women are wrestling with, with petulant, resentful exes who use the children as some kind of means of exercising their lifelong demons about this relationship. It's tough. It's really tough. And yeah, I've seen a lot of people in those ex scenarios who it's so much work added into the relationship. I mean, yes, there's the benefit of, you know, your kid is with someone else three nights a week or whatever, but you have to go through the trauma of the the breakup and then the, the splitting of all those things. Yeah. And I've seen it from both sides, men and women really wrestling with how to keep a kind of copacetic, like happy relationship with their ex who they'd rather not see ever again. (laughs) I mean, I remember an ex-boyfriend of mine said, he had two children. He said, God, you should not be have to see your ex ever again when you split up. You really shouldn't have to ever see them. This is just torture, you know? And I really feel that. Yeah, I feel that too. But my impulse, and perhaps this is unfair, but I I think it's based on a lot of communication with other single mums, single mums who do have to wrestle with exes. Now, I should also put a disclaimer in that I'm actually really fortunate that I do have a good co-parent. And we have, after a bit of a battle at the beginning when we split up and it was quite toxic for a while, we have really come to that place of mutual respect and commitment to our son, which I feel extraordinarily grateful for. Not thankful or lucky to him because that's the way that a father should be, but just grateful that that's our experience. But when I hear, you know, stories of men saying things like you should never have to see your ex or the mother of your children or whatever, I always just feel like, fuck you, dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah, that is also true. What did you do that made her hate you? (laughs) I can guarantee you, you fucking did something. (laughs) Yes, I don't need to get into the particular details of this person, but yes. So then what happened? You made the decision to pursue IVF. And also, I don't know if you'd said this before, but it it was made even more profound really because when you were with this boyfriend who was younger than you and he honestly said to you, I'm just not at that stage of my life yet, you were living in New York. You were living the dream. You were writing, you were, you know, living in a Brooklyn apartment and then you realised, okay, well, if I want to do this, I might have to do it by myself. And so you moved back to Melbourne, which, I mean, that's like a grief as well, isn't it, to kind of give up. It's not just giving up the idea of what, as you said, we're fed as little girls, this one path to true happiness, which is a lie. It's not just giving that up. It's also giving up the career ambitions and that kind of like, that dream of what a life can look like alongside it for something that at that point was completely unknown to you? Yeah, I was giving something up, but to be completely honest, I had been in New York for 10 years and I was ready to leave. New York is incredible. If you want a career in theatre, of course, it's one of the places you move to in the world or used to when we had theatre before a pandemic. But 
I was ready to go. I did feel some ambivalence about the fact that I had built this career and I had built all these connections. And the moment you leave a city, you know, we sure we have, you know, ways of contacting people internationally, but it's like you don't really exist. You have to be in theatre foyers and you have to be bumping into people to kind of keep that career alive. Like there's a lot of hustle and producerial work that goes along. I mean, sure, you know, behind the scenes with any career. So yeah, I did have to leave that, but I was ready to go, which was sort of fortuitous, I think. And also it just struck me that it wasn't an option to have a family on my own without my family, Mm. my parents and my siblings around. That was part of the rationale behind moving home as well. Even though initially I thought, you know, I'll move home and I'll, I'll meet someone. You know, I'll I'll meet someone because that's what everyone tells you. You'll you'll meet someone. Of course you'll meet someone. Probably when you least expect it, like you're walking down the street and you'll just walk around a corner and someone will smash into you. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's like my least favourite phrase that people ever say to single people. When you least expect it, you'll meet someone. Because, of course, when you want to meet someone, you're expecting it. And (laughs) it's kind of like you're just going to be unconsciously walking around, you know, not focusing on any possibility of a relationship. How annoying and inconvenient is it that, okay, look, the universe tells you work really, really hard at being happy, being by yourself, being comfortable in your own space, enjoying your solitude, and then boom, we're going to give you someone to fuck it all up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think I read this thing recently actually in um, The First Move, that book that just came out, um, Emily Brooks, and she says, she did some research and women will settle down whenever they meet the person. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in their life, but men will only settle down when they're ready. So, you know, women are usually at a disadvantage in that way. Essentially it's saying women are willing to rearrange their lives when they find the right partner, whereas men will not rearrange their lives until the timing suits them, which I think was also an issue with my relationships that didn't pan out. Yeah, I think that it's not so much that women are willing to do those things. Like it's not like an innate female quality or anything to do those things. It's that we've been conditioned to make ourselves second and to make ourselves always amenable to men and to think, well, we need to like make a nice home for him, otherwise he'll leave us. I actually found it really interesting in your piece when you, and you sort of touched on it a little bit before, you know, that kind of idea that you're still going to meet someone. And the the conditioning into that romantic ideal is so strong that even at the point where you're like, well, I need to leave this relationship with this person that I love because we're just not at the right stages and I really want to have a child and I've only realistically got a few years left to be able to do that. But there's still this sense that someone will come along and they'll be perfect for me and I'll be able to have the family and it will be happy making and In the article, you talk about going to a support group meeting and speaking to other women who were pursuing motherhood through sperm donorship or who had already become mothers because of that. And you confess in that meeting that you're still holding out hope that you might meet someone to do it with the sort of quote unquote traditional way. (laughs) And you describe the temperature in the room as if it had dropped to Arctic levels. And then someone very gently, very kindly, but forcefully suggested to you that you weren't ready for this process. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because I think a lot of women are in that similar position. And it's not that we're willing to settle down more easily. It's that we feel like we're playing a game of musical chairs. And when we hit our 30s, if we do want to have children, it's like the music has stopped and we're like, well, this is the chair. I'm on the chair. And 
I feel like we need to be a lot more honest as women about the fact that we are put between a rock and a hard place when it comes to having children because there are no economic support systems in place in order for us to be able to do that successfully by ourselves or to even leave relationships that are not happy for us. And so we do kind of convince ourselves that this is what we want. This is the chair. I'm sitting on the chair, so he'll do. And then I'm going to make a family with him and that's my life now. Yeah. And the incredible thing is there are a lot of women and I think they're a lot of them are about, you know, 10 years younger than me who I interviewed for this piece that they didn't make it in there, unfortunately. It was, you know, it's hard to include everyone's story, but there are these women who are proactively making this choice. They're not waiting. And they, so many of them said to me, I've always known I wanted to be a mother. Having a partner is secondary. And I love that. I love that these women are, you know, really just grabbing their reproductive futures like in their hands and going, I'm going to do this regardless of what my relationship situation is. And I think I wish I had got to that place quicker in my decision-making, but I think it just takes you as long as it takes. Mm. And I feel like a lot of women, you know, people who will be listening to this and read the article, as you said, are in that purgatory Mm. where they're trying to make a decision like should I stay with this guy who's not quite right should I wait for someone single and should I wait for someone who is going to give me a child you know they're in that horrible holding place where they feel beholden to another person to decide their fate and to decide whether or not they have a family and I'm not saying it's easy just go for it like no big deal like I think there's a lot of things to consider but I do wish I could release a lot of people from that purgatory, from that hell. You know, I I really do. I just feel it so deeply. And I have friends who are in relationships with people who they shouldn't be in, you know, toxic relationships and they really want a baby. And they're just sticking around hoping that the guy will come around to the idea and come good as a human. It kind of breaks my heart to see it. I really liked the part in your article where you quote someone who had become a mother using donor sperm. You say over the phone one day, she'd explained to me how she had to grieve the story she'd been fed since birth, love, marriage, babies, before deciding to go it alone. And she said, once I let the sadness out, it made way for all these new narratives I hadn't even considered. And actually, I mean, I'm a soppy beast and that makes me want to cry when I read it because... It's so beautiful and it's so true and that regardless of how you come to, even how you come to motherhood, the narrative that's in your head that you've been fed since birth is so different to the one that actually plays out. I'm a single mum now who co-parents with my son's dad and we do it very well. And the narratives that have been laid out for my life that I didn't expect have been really affirming and really enriching, you know, the relationships and the connections that I've made with other mums and with other women and the ways in which we talk about this sort of new reality for us has been completely unexpected to what I imagined when I was pregnant and thinking about, well, this will be our family. And I actually think that the relationship that my son's dad has with our son has improved a thousandfold since we split up and since I removed myself from a situation in which I was kind of the nucleus around which the family revolved, you know, because I was organizing everything and I was bearing the mental load like so many women do, not because he was a bad person, but just because this is how society conditions us all to fall into patterns of behavior. Having been put in the position himself now where he has to be an active and committed single dad and committed co-parent, 
has opened up new narratives for his life as well that are really affirming to him. And I really like that you point out that after you leave that support group meeting, you go to brunch with three of the women there and you form almost immediately this new friendship and you observe that, well, actually, maybe I'm not doing it alone. Maybe I'm just not doing it with whoever society and Disney and romantic comedies told me I should be doing it with, but who actually in reality is not and would never support me in the same way that these women will. Yeah. And Esther Perel, obviously renowned therapist, talks about that a lot. I used to work for her in New York. That's a whole other story. But she always says, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, She always says, you know, you can't look to one person for everything. You know, we used to have a village in terms of the way, you know, life used to be set out where people lived in small villages and they would get this thing from this person and this childcare from this person and romantic love from this person. And now we're looking for a partner who has going to give us everything. And that is just impossible. And it's an impossible burden. And because of that, modern love is really difficult. And I really think that even people in partnerships shouldn't just be looking to their partner to raise their children. That is incredible burden on one person you know hopefully you have friends and you have uncles and you have parents and I really think people like that whole village thing which is a cliche is true and I see people sometimes in partnerships who are kind of locked into you know people I have friends for instance who are from overseas and they live here and it's just them and their partner and that's incredibly difficult for them not to have any extended family nearby. But it does often mean that they rely more on friends. So, you you know, you create whatever village you want to create. And if you're going to become a solo parent, you have to learn how to ask for things. It's really uncomfortable. I'm personally not very good at it, but you have to become kind of shameless at asking for favours and help and people to cook your meals or come over and walk your kid around the park or whatever. And you have to create this village for yourself to be able to do it. Mm. Oftentimes when women pursue single and sole motherhood, because patriarchy is obviously invested in keeping women in roles in which we support male ambition and men's greatness and men's success, it does not behoove patriarchy to have all of these women going out and saying, well, I'm going to do it by myself. Because that, where does that leave the men? So they need to make us feel like this is a shameful pursuit. No one wants you, so you did this by yourself, so you're a failure. But another way that they do it is by saying, well, you're denying the child a father. You're denying the child a male role model in their life. And one of the things that I really loved about your piece was that you addressed that and you said, my son has really strong male role models in his life. He's got his grandfather. I mean, you lived with your parents for four months after the birth, which is incredible. I, my mother's dead, but my family doesn't live in Melbourne. So I had that similar experience of having no familial support or anything like that. Luckily I did have friends, but, uh, you know, so he's got his grandfather. Also his uncle, your brother comes around and walks him once a week and does the bedtime routine and the story reading. I mean, it's ridiculous to suggest that somehow a father is the only person that can provide a male role model to a child. And what's interesting about that is that we would never suggest that a mother is the only female role model in a child's life because it's assumed in the society that we live in that women provide that care in all forms. You know, they provide it at childcare, at school, because these are obviously traditionally feminised industries. The assumption there is that men in society, not just even in the home, but in society, have no broader role to play 
in the village scenario of raising children, mm. which I think is really damaging, not just for kids, but also really damaging for men. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think, you know, both of my brothers and my dad, they love children. They're incredibly like clucky people. And I don't, I don't think it's just them. I think a lot of men can play a part in children's lives that are adjacent to them, that are not their children. Mm. It's funny that you point out that sentence in the article because I felt like I needed to say that. Well, first of all, the editor who's brilliant and, you know, made the piece what it was, she said to me, who are the male role models or something? She had thrown that into one of the rounds of feedback. And it was a a bit like this unspoken thing where we were both like, let's just address (laughs) any trolls or any people who are going to come out of the woodwork and say, but there's no man. Like, there's no man. It's a disaster. And... um, I'm not reading the comments because I think there are a few people saying that, according to my dad's told me. Thankfully, he's been reading the comments, not me. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive, I should say, from so many people, men and women included. But, yeah, there is this sort of, I think men get a bit squeaky about it. They're a bit like, oh, God, this is uncomfortable. For instance, I bumped into a family friend recently with my son and I, you know, mentioned something about my son being donor-conceived and he said, oh, you're not going to do away with us altogether, are you? Yeah. And I thought, isn't that interesting? What not that interesting that you bring that up? Because obviously that's what you're afraid of. That's the fear mm-hmm. is that we won't need you. <laughs> we, won't, we won't need your help. We won't need you in the picture. That is so true. But what's, what's especially galling about that as well is that if this is the one thing that is supposedly keeping us tied to men, the fact that we could have children with them, why don't they try fucking harder to live up to that? You know, and I'm not, it's rare for me to issue a not all men statement, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm not demonizing all men. I know that there are committed fathers. I mean, it sounds like your father's a committed father. It sounds like your brother is a really committed man when it comes to child rearing. So I know that they exist, but I also know, and perhaps it's just my position because so many women write to me about their experiences. I know how common it is for men to have been given the absolute gift of a woman who will have children with them and try to create a loving home for that family to live in. And I'm not saying as a homemaker, but try to create a loving environment who just fucking piss it up the wall, who they they don't show any kind of gratitude for that or respect for it. So to ha- it's galling to me to have men then turn around and say, oh, well, you're not going to go and do away with us all together, are you? What are you <laughs> offering besides that story? <laughs> better. Oh, my God, yes. I think it's really important to see stories like yours being shared in the public domain where women can see that not only is it, this isn't the second best option. Oh, well, I couldn't find a man, so I just went and did it by myself like a big sad loser. It's actually a really empowering decision for you to make because not only do you get to become a mother on your terms, but you get to continue your life in a way that as you said, you know, like having a child is introducing a third person into the relationship. And this is what threatens and challenges so many relationships because, and it's not because there's a third person there who's upset the dynamic. It's because where previously women, I'm talking obviously in cishet relationships here, or not necessarily have to be a a heterosexual woman to be partnered with a man, but who are partnered with men. Women traditionally in those roles before a child comes along will prioritize the man's needs and will facilitate and smooth all of the edges around them to make sure that their path through the world is pretty 
good. But when the child's there, of course the mum is like, I have a, a tiny creature that, as you said, which I thought was so beautiful, I've knitted this from the flesh of my own body and I have to protect this tiny creature now. And it's almost like, for, certainly for a while, if there is another person in the house, and particularly if they're a fucking man that, that has expectations that you still continue to provide all of the mental and emotional labour that you did before, they just become this pest. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but you can't focus any of your attention on them when you're trying to keep this small human alive. And yet so many men don't seem to understand that once the child is born, certainly for a period of time, they're the least important person in the house. And they're the least important person in the house, not because they're a man, but because the baby's the most important person in the house because they're the most helpless. And the mother for that period of time is the one that will be required most to keep that child alive. So the man's job is to support the woman. And so often they fail. That's why so many women get to, you know, that two-year-old mark and they're like, well, I've come through the period of newborn where I just, I was almost living in a hallucinogenic dreamscape because I was so tired. I've come through the weird sort of like 12 to 14 month toddler years where I'm finally emerging into the light and blinking and thinking what just happened to me. And now the child is two and I actually feel really strong. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've developed all of these incredible skills of fortitude as a mum. And I'm not going to fucking put up with this shit anymore. It's really simple, actually. So many relationships would stay together if men just realized that. And it's interesting because so many women who are in partnerships, you know, for instance, my mother's group will go out for drinks or something and it will just be a litany of frustrations. You know, he does this, he like doesn't get up with the baby in the middle of the night. He like, I ask him to take the laundry out of the, you know, washing machine. He just takes it out and throws it on the bed. And it's like, ha ha ha. And everyone's laughing at these kind of annoying things that these guys do. But I often leave those situations and think, you know, I might not have another pair of hands, but I also don't have anyone I have to resent. And there is a lot of resentment and frustration that these women are feeling. And it's real, the sense that, you know, sometimes women feel like they're parenting two people in a dynamic, a child and a partner, unfortunately. Mm. Not all men, of course, but yeah. And then I have people say to me, oh, you're so lucky. I have people who are in relationships say to me, you're so lucky. Like you don't have to, you know, you're so lucky you don't have to make your relationship work. And I just think, you know, of course, I don't want to privilege one version of motherhood over another because that's been done to women for all time. It's like you should be one kind of mother and not another. I'm not saying, you know, my path is better than your path or vice versa. But I kind of reel when people say to me, you're so lucky. There's sort of two camps. One person who's saying to me, you're so lucky. And then there's other mothers who are saying to me, oh, it must be so hard, you know. So it's weird. It wildly swings between those two extremes. Well, the good news is that you're not any luckier than they are if they just left their shitty husbands. <laughs> <laughs> I should definitely start saying, I'll quote you, I'll say, Clemford yeah. said. <laughs> it does speak to the, again, that stranglehold that the romantic fantasy has on us all, that even when presented in our own lives with the unreality of that, even when there are so many women, and I don't say this as a judgment because it's very, very hard to reject the conditioning of patriarchy and to make that choice to step into the unknown. I understand that. But there are so many women who will stay in those really, really shitty relationships. And I'm not saying abusive relationships even, but just unfulfilling, unsupportive, 
like you're climbing up a mountain and it's supposed to be easier because there's two of you doing it, but actually he's just hanging out on a rope around your mm, waist. That whole Catlin Moran metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, where you're just dragging two people with you. Yeah. But there are a lot of women who'll stay in those situations because to leave, to become a single mother by that option as opposed to becoming a sole mother by choice is also seen as a failure somehow. We talk about failed relationships as opposed to relationships that end. And I think that there's a fear that if we make that choice that the eyes of society will look at us and go, poor thing, poor thing, as opposed to fucking amazing that she put a value on herself and said, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I can be happy alone. Because, of course, it all feeds still into the idea, and men never have this depicted of them, but it all feeds into the idea that women will never be truly happy if we are single and sad, that our happiness is contingent upon finding a man to choose us, even though Mm. what he needs to do is just be there, you know. He is a man, you get to take care of him for the rest of your life and wash his clothes for him and cook his food for him and clean up after him and resent him at your mother's groups and all laugh about it. Aren't you lucky? Yeah. It's crazy how pervasive that idea is that we aren't complete until we find someone. Mm. You know, that whole kind of Bridget Jones, like, ah, I've got to find someone, I've got to find someone, sort of manic stereotype is still real and alive and as you said, in your 30s, you start to feel with increasing force. It's sort of like bearing down on you this sense of um, success or failure based around whether or not you've found a partnership. Mm. And I think in dealing with my own family around this, their hope was that I would find one. That's out of a loving desire. You know, we we hope that you're going to be loved. You know, my mum said to me at one point, we want you to be loved. And I'm not against that. I'm not against being loved or loving someone else. I I mean, I'm not saying I will never have a relationship, but I think it was kind of a radical idea to them, this idea that you could sort of autonomously choose your own path with having a baby. And I think there is a bit of a generational divide in that way around making these kind of families. Mm. You know, I had to grieve my own narrative, you know, my own kind of idea, but I think they did as well because I think the people around you have expectations of how your life is going to unfold. Your parents in particular have ideas about how your life is going to unfold. And so it's only fair that they might do the grieving a little bit after you did the grieving. Mm. So that was a good thing to realise. It was a bit like, to borrow a term from queer culture, like a kind of coming out process with people to tell them about this and to have them accept it as a possibility. Mm. And to come to terms with it. And they did. And they did come to terms with it. And and they have been incredible. And I think once there is a child in the picture, nobody questions your choice anymore. You know, everyone loves a child. Everyone loves a baby. And when I walk down the street now with my kid in a pram, there's a story that people are building around me. They don't know who I am or who I'm with or what I'm doing with my life. They just see like mum, child, (laughs) they they think, probably think I'm going home to my husband or whatever. They have a conventional narrative around. I often think I'm just so interesting. They probably think one thing of me and I'm actually living a completely different life, you know, to the one that they think that I'm living. Mm. And there's a kind of dissonance between those two things, which is interesting. But I think more people are like accepting of this path. And it's, I'm hoping that like writing about it makes it normal for people, makes it possible for people. Well, people also have assumptions when they see someone who is partnered, oh, she must be very happy. 
we never know what's going on in people's lives. I really hope that reading articles like yours and seeing more and more women do it will have that empowering effect and impact because, you know, as I said at the start and as I've been saying for a really long time, a lot of women want to have children. Not all women. I know that that when I talk about women's desire for children, I'm generalizing here and I'm, I'm not issuing an all women statement, but women's desire to have children has to be separated, I think, from our desire to have romantic love, which is also a completely legitimate want and need. Because once we separate those two things, we can make really, really healthy choices about both of them. We won't maintain relationships with, like if we're, if we're tied to a nuclear family model, a lot of women feel really, really trapped within that. Yet if they're just mothering by themselves or even co-parenting or going the sole motherhood route like you did, those choices about motherhood, they're completely uninformed. They are not subject to any kind of other dynamics that may be going on in a romantic relationship except for what it is the mother thinks that child needs. It's completely dependent on the relationship between the mother and the child, which then leaves the space for your romantic relationships to be conducted completely on the basis of an adult connection with each other. And you can also say as a woman, well, I can't do that, sorry, because I have to go and look after my child. It's, it's very good for boundary setting. And I think that that is actually something that if we lived, so hard to do now because society structurally doesn't support women to be able to mother by themselves and to have collective support and economic support and a village mentality in terms of raising children. If we did that though, it would go so far to liberating women from patriarchal oppression because we wouldn't then be consigned to make these really damaging choices for ourselves on the basis of our own reproductive wants. Yeah. And a couple of things. One, we do need men. We need sperm donors. So if anyone wants to be a sperm donor and you're listening to this, go and donate your sperm. Like I'm serious. The donor resources are low and that's because there's all these laws around advertising and it's complicated but I think a lot of men could be sperm donors um and I'm going to use your podcast as an opportunity to spruik that um I'm assuming there's a lot of potential sperm donors out there listening <laughs> yeah it, this podcast is listened to by so many men <laughs> am I is this the wrong sorry I thought I was on um yeah <laughs> I'm like I don't know I mean I just feel like Obviously, there are men who want to have children as well and want to have families. I think that maybe by disrupting our understanding of what those families look like, it might actually make the men who, who want to have children try harder yeah. to be worthy of those children and to not have their families kind of exist around them. That's what I think a lot of men end up doing, whether or not they intend to or not. They're very satisfied with having their family be a sort of peripheral kind of idea. You know, it's not something that they necessarily actively engage with or intentionally consider what those children need. The number of women who feel chronically like let down by their male, you know, live-in partner, I hate that word because most men aren't partners, but the number of women who feel let down by whatever that is because they are just kind of like sitting back and letting everything happen around them indicates to me that family for a lot of those men is something that they want but don't want to do any of the work to have. Mm. Maybe 
we actually made it clear that need them for that. So if they wanted that, they needed to work hard to earn it, then they would actually have new narratives for their life too. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of putting men to work, men working harder. I also think that it's very telling that the person that you would have a relationship with after you have a child is very different to the person that you would date or choose before you have a child. Like it sort of eliminates Uh. a lot of bullshit, you know. So if I was to meet someone now, there are a whole series of criteria that I would just not overlook. I just wouldn't be able to date someone who wasn't emotionally mature or didn't have their shit together Mm -hmm. because I just don't have the time or the bandwidth for that. I absolutely do not. And I'm sure you don't either. No. And that's actually really, really liberating. It's a total relief to not have to consider a whole category of people who are not up to being in a relationship for whatever reason or, you know, like, and it's, it's not even like extreme criteria. It's just sometimes it's like a minimum bar of, (laughs) you know. That's a really good point. And it's something I've reflected on a lot since having a child and then kind of re-entering the dating scene is that I was also subject, as we all are, to the romantic fantasy of this is what my life will look like. And I'm not saying that I played musical chairs with my son's father. Like I said, he's a great dad and I was in love with him. But now that I'm on the other side of whatever kind of path to happiness was shoved down my throat my whole life, I do have a lot more freedom to make choices that serve me and my needs that I wouldn't necessarily have felt confident in before. And partly as as well, part of that confidence has been that I do think that motherhood fortifies you in some really intense way. Absolutely. You know, and recovering from it physically and emotionally is such an intense process. But now, as you said, like, I'm not looking to live with anyone. I don't have a linear idea of what love looks like for me. I'm not trying to find a man who I can spend six months with and then eventually move in with. And then a year after that, maybe he'll propose. And then six months after that, maybe we'll start having, you know, trying to have a baby or whatever it is. I don't want any of that. And it really frees me up to kind of go, okay, well, what do I want then? And as it turns out, what I want is to live by myself for the rest of my life and have my things in my house, the shoes on the floor are my shoes, and I would like to date people who I don't ever have to fucking pick up after. 100%, 100%. No sock droppings, as I used to call them, like just littered (laughs) around the house, you know, little sock droppings, just, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I totally Ali, should we get to the questions? Please. I love giving unqualified advice. Please note my disclaimer that neither Ali nor I are professionally trained sex therapists, counsellors, or doctors. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who will no longer date assholes. Hopeless Data writes, I'm feeling really hopeless right now because I'm never the girlfriend category, always casual. I know it shouldn't matter, but it's a dent in my self-worth. What is it about me? How come some people can get into relationships so easily? For context, I'm 30 years old. I'd hooked up with this guy before and he started talking to me. The conversation was nice and not sexual. He brought up common interests and we bonded over them. He was checking on me about my job, etc. when COVID happened. He also knew that I was having a hard time about something this year. It felt like maybe he cared. It took months of talking for him to ask, but lockdown made me crazy and I sent him some nude photographs. 
If he had asked any earlier, I would have definitely made him wait, but COVID stopped us from being in the same state all year. By July, I got carried away and thinking that I may as well if I can't see him. I could tell it was just sex, so I had to ask, and he told me he's not over his ex. I feel so used. Now I look like a girl who would fall for his shit. I wasn't trying to be a cool girl, but I feel tricked into thinking his attention meant something, that I yet again allowed a guy to treat me this way. I said that it should stop at that point, but he's still being a friend, and now it makes me question how genuine he is. After he told me this, he even commented on the art I make, which is something I honestly thought he would ignore. Why is he making it look like he cares about my passions and what I do? I feel stupid. It's disheartening to put myself out there and it not work out every time. All that effort, thinking that maybe someone could actually like me for me. I don't know how much more energy I have anymore. I've got there before with self-worth and I found myself before and was happy. But it seems harder to get there again. A few too many rejections and I feel like, why can't it happen for me? Sorry this is so long. I'd really love to hear your insight on something like this and I don't know who else to turn to. Ali. Ugh. Heartbreaking. You're not stupid. You're just not stupid. You're not stupid. And this is such a common story. I mean, first of all, heartbreak never really gets easier. There's this sort of illusion that if someone lets you down or, you know, you're heartbroken, as you get older, that will somehow get less and less painful. But I think it's just as painful when you're 15 as when you're 50. It's more painful when you're 50, actually, because you do have all of those feelings that you shouldn't feel, but you do have all those feelings that I'm really stupid to have let this happen again. How could I have let this happen again? So it's... Yeah. Feel like someone, for someone to have broken through the walls that you've obviously erected over the years, it's like double the blow. Yeah, you're not stupid. You're a totally normal human being who did a totally normal thing, which is that you got involved with someone who seemed like they were interested in you and they were giving you all the signals that they were interested in you. I mean, I also think the modern (laughs) construct of online dating is innately flawed. It sounds like you met this person online which is how we meet people now, unfortunately. And uh, it's just, there's so much head fuckery with, you know, communicating via text Mm. and communicating via messages. And you can fall in love with someone without ever meeting them and inevitably get disappointed. I mean, if I could tell myself anything in previous communications with people where this kind of stuff has happened to me, I wish that I had not, I, I sort of, I sectionally started to have a rule where I said, I don't want to, have an epistolary romance with you. That's what I'll write in like a first text. And if they don't know what the word epistolary means, I have to look it up. But I don't want to have like a back and forth, you know, 7,000 messages with someone. I just want to meet them. You know, we can have a few messages. And so, you know, but it's very common. We all get into these scenarios. But I just think you're not stupid. You put yourself out there, which is brave. It's brave to do it every time. It really is. And I just, I so hear this woman when she says like he was interested in my art and that he's keeping her around as a friend. And I think this guy is breadcrumbing you and I would just cut him out of your life as soon as possible. It sounds like he's a waste of your time. I mean, (laughs) I really do. And I think that each time you do this, your radar gets a little bit sharper. Uh It's like you put in a little bit less effort and a little bit less effort and a little bit less effort until you just you know, you get one message and you know straight off. Mm. It just kind of gets sharpened each time and I think that's a good thing. I think people underestimate how brave it is actually to get emotionally involved with other people and it's seen as a kind of a weakness, but it's not. It really isn't. Oh, I agree with you completely. 
And I would like to reiterate what you're saying to this dear little sister. You are not stupid, although I have felt that way before. I know why you feel stupid, but you're not stupid. As you said, Ali, it's not stupid to open your heart up to someone and it's not stupid to be the kind of person that wants to trust other humans, particularly not when they have clearly entered into an intimate and vulnerable space with you that makes you feel like you can trust them. I think that you can feel incredibly hurt and heartbroken after that. And you can go through the, you know, multitude of feelings about, well, I'm never going to trust anyone again. And that's just put another little layer of scar tissue over my heart. And so it'll be, I'm going to make it more difficult for someone to break past the barrier next time. And that's fine. And we should be careful with our hearts because there are a lot of people out there who want, who get off on the challenge of making it past those barriers and then hurting us. But I actually don't think that you should feel anything other than pride at being the kind of person who is willing to take a leap off of a mountain into the unknown and go, I'm going to see what can happen here. This person says that I can trust them and I'm just going to see what can happen. I also really recommend to everyone, and I share this article a lot, it's about I think about 13 years old actually. It's an old Jezebel one that was written by Tracy Morrissey. Its title is The Emotional Conquistador is the New Sexual Conquistador. And the basic premise of it is that in a post-sexual revolution world where women are quote-unquote allowed to go out and have as much sex as they like and to be able to express themselves and their sexual needs in a way that is actually really threatening to men who always needed women to be subservient in that space, the new way of undermining women is to emotionally conquer them and then turn around and say, well, actually, I'm just not really ready for this. I'm not over my ex or things are moving a little bit too fast. And fuck me, man, I have been in those situations and I know a lot of women who've been in those situations where you do let someone in and you do let them make you feel like you might be building something or building towards something and then they just slam the door in your face, you know? It's like I said to one of them who I'm actually still friends with, but I said, it's like you invited me into your house and then I walked up the steps and I got to the front door and you just closed it in my face and left me there on the porch. Mm. That is a common experience for so many of us. And I'm not saying that men necessarily consciously go out to do it, but I think that that is a lot of what motivates some of the ghosting or the kind of the laying down of emotional, intimate kind of groundwork for a relationship that you then show them you're willing to take the first step into. And the moment you do, they're like, well, actually, oh, oh, I'm, this is awkward, but I'm just not really <laughs> in the space right now. I'm actually still really up with my ex. So don't feel stupid at all, but I seriously think you need to stop communicating with him. Yeah. Take the power back that, you know, what power that you have. And you do have some power left in the situation, which is that you don't have to give your energy or time to this person Mm. who is never going to be able to give you what you want. Sadly, it's disappointing. I know it's really disappointing. I feel your disappointment so profoundly and we've all felt it. And I think you're saying to us, will I ever meet someone? Why can't I ever meet someone? And I just think you're not alone in that. I think a lot of people are feeling that. It's not like everyone else has it figured out. And I just don't think there's an answer to that, unfortunately. 
again, reading between what you're saying, this idea that like I'm not girlfriend material, this is a fear that plagues so many women who are Mm. interested in having relationships with men, the fear that we're not girlfriend material. We're all fucking girlfriend material. And the reason I know that is because as we've talked about in this podcast, society has conditioned us to massage and smooth and make ourselves amenable to men's needs and wants which is actually not something that we should be doing. So in terms of that, we're all girlfriend material, but actually we shouldn't be in those situations. Mm. You're like a beautiful, artistic, talented, smart, intelligent, brave woman who is opening yourself up to love. That makes you the perfect candidate for love. Just because men are exploiting the means available to them now to string a number of women along, as you said, breadcrumb them, doesn't mean that you don't deserve all of the things that you want. And it doesn't mean that you actually are not able to offer those things. Yeah. And I think what I'm understanding this little sister is saying as well is, what did I do? What did I do Mm. to cause this? Like I sent the nudes, I contacted him, like I'm such an, like there's a bit of a, like I'm such an idiot for falling into this trap. And it's like, you didn't do anything. Mm. I just want to release you from any self-loathing or self-blame around it. You didn't do anything. The reason this person doesn't want to be in a relationship with you is because they don't want to be in a relationship. It's got nothing to do with you. Most of the time it has nothing to do with us. Other people will come to wherever they come to whenever they want to and we can't make that happen for them, unfortunately. And this isn't true of all people who don't want to be in a relationship, but for some people who don't want to be in a relationship, particularly some men who don't want to be in a relationship, it's because it requires effort from them in some way. It's very easy to maintain a text-based relationship and get what you want out of it. The moment that there's a suggestion that you might actually have to provide some reciprocal emotional support or be present in some way that is inconvenient to you or frightening to you, like, God, what would it mean if I actually let this woman into my heart and my life? Please don't go away from that thinking, oh, he's just too broken and I need to fix him. No, no more fixing men. As you said, Ali, it's nothing to do with you. It's all of their problem. And if he's doing it to you, he's probably doing it to other women. And absolutely, you're definitely not the only one that is also going through this. You know, so many women feel like, well, I've had this emotional connection with someone. And then I, someone said to me the other day that they were ghosted by their fucking fiance after four years together. Ooh. They just ghosted them. Oh, like. That's oh, the worst scare. Dagger through the heart. <laughs> yeah, that is, oof, that's rough. Heartbreaking as it is, we need to kind of really practice, and it is a practice, we need to practice reminding ourselves that this is not a reflection on us. Maybe it's not even as duplicitous as any of this. Maybe you're just not right for each other. I remember mm. actually when I when I broke up with my very first boyfriend when, when I was 19 years old and we'd been together for like three months. So I was devastated. Um, And I remember crying about it one night to a friend of mine who was a man and saying to him, you know, all this kind of going through this, this sort of self-torture that is painful, but that's also kind of pleasurable at the same time when you're heartbroken, you're like, I'm a big piece of shit. And you kind of like lean into that indulgence. Yeah. Yeah. Probably me. I'm probably just the worst person to have ever lived. (laughs) And I remember saying to him, 
I just felt like I was wrong. I was wrong for him, you know, and I was, I was a wrong kind of girl and that this was proof of it. And he said to me, you're not wrong for him. You would just not write for each other. And it's such a simple thing, but it actually kind of made me feel a lot better at the time where, and I, I try to go back to that frequently whenever I'm feeling a little bit heartbroken or self-indulgently tortured over someone. It's not me. It's not my problem. I didn't fail to secure that person's love because of a list of, you know, attributes about myself that I love to beat myself up about. That's not the problem. We were just not right for each other or they were a dickhead. Yeah. You know? And you actually, I mean, it's such a cliche, but you did dodge a bullet. You could have pushed and pushed and pushed and tried to get that person to commit and hung around and did all everything you could and you saved yourself so much heartache actually figuring this out about this guy now rather than dating this guy who is still not over his ex. I mean, imagine if he told you this in a year's time. Mm. So as shitty as it feels right now, you that person was not going to be able to give you what you wanted. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are really feeling those that insecurity not just through COVID, but also just generally speaking, since online dating became so prevalent, like became the meeting place, primarily because it doesn't actually lend itself to forming long-term relationships with people, even though some people do form long-term relationships out of it, because it offers itself as that kind of the adrenaline shot in your brain, you know, like you keep swiping and there's always the way that it works and the way that they keep you paying for the product Mm. is because they want you to believe that there might be something better around the corner than what you already have. Absolutely. And I read this thing recently, which I just found so profound and I couldn't believe I hadn't realized it earlier. They said online dating is designed to keep you single. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, of course it is. Like I I just felt like such an idiot for not actually having realized that. I thought, yeah, that's the whole medium. Mm. It's designed to keep you looking. Mm. And never be satisfied. Don't blame yourself, little sister. Give yourself some time to feel heartbroken, to feel sad, listen to sad girl music, go for long walks and, you know, fantasize about, exercise whatever kind of fantasies in your head that you want him to bring to you, whether or not that's him coming and saying that he was, he made a big mistake and he's really in love with you. Because I I can tell you not to fantasize about that, but I know you will. So just go out, lean into it, indulge it, but just keep reminding yourself along the way that this is not your problem, that you are brave for wanting to be loved and you're brave for putting yourself out there and just try and be a little bit kinder to yourself. I Mm. think, you know, we all all really benefit from that. Yeah, totally. Cosmetic Girl says, for a while now, I've been considering getting some cosmetic work done. No major surgery, just some under eye fillers, lip fillers, and maybe fixing a pronounced bump in my nose. I've never been someone who's overly conscious of their looks. In fact, throughout my teens and early 20s, I never even wore makeup because I didn't like the feel and the effort. But now that I'm in my 30s, I'm definitely just feeling and looking older. I'm turning away from mirrors more, avoiding photos, feeling self-conscious. And I figure I can afford it. It's available to me. Why the hell shouldn't I be able to improve the way I look and feel more confident if I want to? 
But then the guilty feminist in me chimes in and says, you're just playing into the patriarchy. Don't be shallow. You should just age gracefully. And there's so many more important things you could spend this money on, like a holiday or a house deposit, rather than injecting gunk into your face when probably no one's going to care or notice anyway. I'm also worried about how my friends and my boyfriend will judge me if I say I want to do this. Should I just do it without telling them? I think they'll think I'm conceited or ask who I'm trying to impress or why would I bother. And the truth is, I'm not really sure why. I just want to look better because I just do and I don't have a good reason. Thoughts, Ali? This is a tough question. I think we think about it all the time as women. You know, what if I did a bit of this, did a bit of that? You know, does that make me a bad feminist? I don't want to tell cosmetic girl what to do with her face or her body. You know, you have totally free to choose to spend your money any way that you want. I think it does bring up tricky questions of choice feminism. It's like just because you can choose it, though, does that mean it's an empowered choice? But just make me think of this, like, I read this play recently that was set in a nursing home and it was about old people and sexuality and them having sex. It was kind of, it's called The Door. It's by this amazing American playwright called Jessica Dickey. And there's this beautiful monologue in it where this woman talks to her older self. So she she gets advice from her 80-year-old self. And her 80-year-old self says to her, know that you are lovely Mm. and, like, really know it. Yeah, I know. I'm just tearing. Like, I literally started crying when I was reading it. Shout out to Jess Dickey in New York. That really touched me because I think, you know, we're all ageing. Like, we can't reverse that path. And your older self is going to look back at the you now and just think you are just gorgeous. And I just want you to remember that amidst, you know, this decision-making process. Yeah, know that you're lovely now. And it's like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. That's the problem. It's like we get plastic surgery and it's too much. She looks crazy. She has Botox and fillers. We don't get it and we're old and ugly. Like we're kind of criticised from any angle, like however we choose to age. Because nothing we do is ever designed to be good, you know. Yeah. Also, if you know, if you get cosmetic injectables, you're automatically a really vapid person. Totally, like, exactly. Her duck lips. You know, it's like men on dating apps who say, I don't want women who wear makeup. And you're like, or I want women who are natural with no makeup. And you're like, firstly, you're full of shit because you definitely want women to wear makeup. Every woman who you think looks natural is wearing makeup. Trust me. Yeah. Or she just has completely flawless skin, which is what you're asking for. Yeah. Secondly, <laughs> I'm pretty sure for natural insistence on like natural bodies does not extend to them being naturally their own weight or naturally having pubic hair and underarm hair. Like all of that stuff is, you know, they're, oh, what a woman who takes care of herself. I mean, I have a very kind of confessional response to this, I suppose, in that I haven't had any cosmetic surgery or procedures done yet. But, (laughs) yet. I'm 39 and I think when I was in my 20s, I would have, I was sort of very staunchly of the view that no, women should be able to age gracefully and I think it's just so sad when you see these women with just shit piled into their face, blah, 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 Mm. you know, all this kind of internalised misogyny, really aggressive sort of, I mean, not like I was going out and street preaching it, but I had those ideas. And then, of course, like the closer I've crept towards 40 and I'm seeing more lines in my face and I, and I take really good care of my skin now, you know, I, I spend a lot of money on skincare. So what's the difference between me having like a really 
vigorous retinol and vitamin C and hyaluronic acid serum treatment program that I'm like fastidious about and spending a lot of money on it. What's the difference between that and saying, you know what, I'm also just going to get a little bit of Botox in that spot between my eyes that Mm -hmm. I always borrow my brow on. I think that the point that you make about choice feminism is really important because I don't think it's a feminist act to be like, well, I'm going to go out and put Botox in my face. But as distinct from the way I might have felt in my 20s, nor do I think it's not a feminist act. I think it's a choice that women make that is on offer to them that is informed by the patriarchal setting that we live in. And it doesn't have to be feminist, nor does it have to be maligned as being not feminist. It's just a choice. And that choice just is. Mm. And you can make the argument, well, by playing into it, you're playing into patriarchal beauty standards. Fine. I also play into patriarchal beauty standards every day because as a woman in the society, I have to survive this society. And I want to be able to do the things that I do without having to also worry about this additional layer of, of shit that stops me from doing those things. And also I kind of like to look nice, whether or not that's informed by patriarchy as well or not is up for debate. I think that the way that I take pleasure in how I look is definitely informed by patriarchal standards, but I don't think that taking pleasure in the way that you look is patriarchal in nature. I think that that's just humanity. It's preening, Mm. it's wanting to be attractive. It's indulging that sort of like self-love in ourselves, whatever. So all of that is a kind of a circuitous way to say, I think that if you want to try injectables and fillers, I think you should fucking go for it. I do think that it's a good point to make broadly if we could, you know, to borrow a phrase that I've heard Sarah use on one of my favourite podcasts, You're Wrong About, if we could zoom out a little bit and look at this as big picture, I think it's a really important point to make that the money that we spend on beauty regimes can be used in so many other important areas. We could say for a house, we could say for a holiday, whatever. And men are not required by patriarchal standards to invest this level of money and economic and time into their appearance in the way that women are. That is definitely an issue that we need to discuss and one that is absolutely rooted in patriarchy. But again, having said that, you're a woman navigating the world and if you want to spend $500 on Botox, fine. And I don't think you should feel ashamed in front of your friends or your boyfriend. Like, just tell them you're doing it. I mean, I wouldn't feel ashamed about those choices or hide them from people. Well, no. And if your boyfriend's got a problem with it, tell him to go fuck himself. You you might be surprised and hear from some friends, well, actually, I've actually had a little lot of Botox here or a filler. Oh, yeah. You no. Know? I'm yeah. going to do these things. This is my policy now. If I get Botox, which I probably will try at some point in the nearer future rather than the distant future, because I've been thinking about it for a long time. If I get it, I'm going to be honest about getting it. And a lot of people might not choose to be honest and that is fine. That is, everyone is walking their own path. But I'll say that I have gotten it because I think that one of the more annoying and insulting things that patriarchy and these standards do to us is to make us feel like we need to comply with them and then hide it Mm. because it's shameful somehow. It's shameful to respond to exactly what is being demanded of us. And then what we do is we say, okay, well, I just look this great naturally, you know, as opposed to, well, no, I spent a lot of money and conformed to patriarchal beauty standards because that's the world that we live in. And also as another thing as well, which I've been thinking a lot about, 
there is an argument to be made here, and it's a tenuous one because I'm not saying that it's a fiercely political act to go out and have injectables or cosmetic surgery, nor is it not political. I think it just is. And for some people, obviously, it is very political. But I think that there is something to consider in that when we are women in our 20s and society perceives us in general to be at the peak of our physical appearance and we're always told that women in their 20s are the peak desirability and, you know, women in their 30s, as you know, we're talking about motherhood, that we're made to feel like somehow we're over the hill so we need to just settle for whichever guy we're with or if, we're, if we do motherhood by ourselves and we're like some big sad failure that, you know, men love to say to women, well, stop being so picky in your 20s because otherwise you'll be on the shelf in your 30s. So we know in our 20s is when we look the best. But as we enter our 40s is when we start to feel the strongest. It's when we actually start to assert ourselves and our boundaries and our needs and our personalities in a way that we didn't have necessarily the confidence to do when we were in our 20s and and navigating those weird kind of dynamics where we, we hadn't yet learned or practiced what it felt like to disagree with men. So that for me, there is something interesting in that if we have the capacity now to marry those two states of being where Mm. I can be like a powerful woman entering her forties, where I'm going to stand up for exactly what I want, but I'm also going to get to go back somehow and feel the physical power that I may have had in my twenties and yet not really understood or been in control of. That's kind of interesting to me. It is. And to name drop Esther again, Esther Perel, I remember she said once, I wish I had had the confidence that I have now and she's in her 50s like with the looks that I had in my 20s yeah. and I just thought that was so cool because it's like you do become more sure of yourself and sure of what you want and you do feel so much better about yourself the older you get and it's weirdly coincides with this decline in <laughs> how you feel you look. I also think that if we could assume for a minute that we didn't live in a patriarchal system and we just existed in a world in which we also understood that we aged. I think it's understandable in some way that as we age and we have the physical signs of that decline, that we want to kind of recapture our youth, not necessarily just to make ourselves more attractive, but because we're wrestling with fears of mortality. You know, the idea that once you're in your 60s, like ageism is obviously very rife in society as well. And it affects men and women differently. And women are more profoundly impacted by it than men are. But I do still think that there is something in there about, well, what's wrong with not wanting to age quite so rapidly if we have the option to extend our youth for a little bit longer? I think that that, that's actually quite an understandable human Mm. desire. That there's also this feeling or hope that through altering ourselves, we'll somehow reach some form of perfection. And I would say that that doesn't exist. Like it's never attainable. And unfortunately for women, it's like we're living under that kind of idea all the time of like if I just had a little bit less cellular out of my thighs and a little bit of the list crinkle between my forehead, a little bit of the, like if I just stripped away those things, somehow I'd be happy and I'd feel wonderful about myself and I like would be a perfect human being. And that I, I think that's mm. it's so hard because we're constantly striving for that self-betterment. Mm. You know, there's no end point for that, which is good to acknowledge even as you might decide to do this. It's not like mm. you're never going to age because you get fillers or 
you're never going to get older or, you know, that's still the reality. That's a really, really good reminder to put in there as well in that as much as I think if you want to do this, do it. And also I, I think that if, if this little sister has emailed the show about it, it means she's been thinking about it for a while. So often when questions like this, not necessarily to do with cosmetics, but about should I do this, come in, it's that they've already made up their mind that they want to. They're just asking for permission. And totally. I'm just going to repeat what I say to everyone, which is you don't need us to give you permission to do anything. If you've decided that this is what you want to do, all you need to think about is the potential fallout of that decision and how you will manage it and go into it with open eyes. And one of the things, as you say, Ali, that you need to be really cognizant of if you make this choice, and I've thought about it too in terms of me making this choice, is that you're not going to do, be like one and done. You know, it's like getting tattoos. You're going to get more than one. And be very mindful, I think, of not wanting to chase that rainbow of perfection. But I don't think that it's unfeminist to want to do it. I think it's a response to the world that we live in. And I understand it completely. Yeah, I do too. The last thing I will say is if you do choose to do it, please, please, please go to a reputable professional <laughs> trained. No doctor. back alley dermatologist. Yeah. <laughs> no cheap deals. No, fillers are not something you want to save money on. Okay. Don't do a group on. Please. <laughs> I'm I'm not even being funny. I cannot stress this more strenuously. Please do not scrimp on having someone inject botulism into your face or fillers, you know, because it can go, it can go very badly. And I don't just mean in that it will like change the shape of your face, but there have been stories, there's a Four Corners report. If you're going to do this, go and watch the Four Corners report on it. An untrained person providing something like fillers, those fillers can leak into your face. They can cause poisoning. They can permanently damage your vision. Just really do your research, please. But other than that, don't worry about what anyone else will think because it's your face and only you can come to the decision about what you do with it. Okay, final question of the day. Finally Free writes, I finally left my husband after multiple tries and I couldn't be happier. I found a house share that allows me to have my dog, and I honestly can't believe my luck. The house is beautiful and affordable. I was worried for years that I couldn't financially afford to leave because I have chronic pain, which limits my working capacity. I realized my husband was being psychologically and financially abusive after collating a list of the issues. I read Lundy Bancroft's book, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men, and it has been life-changing. I also realized that I had been sexually abused in the marriage too, and it's been a lot to process. I've been having a lot of feelings. I'm going to see a new psychologist as the previous one suggested making up for having a panic attack where I spent an hour in the bathroom while the in-laws were outside and my husband got shitty about it. I have supportive family and friends and enough love to last multiple lifetimes. Since leaving, I have spent time reading, exercising, seeing family and friends and settling into my new place. My question is, how do I learn to be myself again without being codependent and relying heavily on others? My identity has been so closely tied to men for the longest time and I feel ready to be alone. How do I individualize myself again? Ali. First of all, I just really want to say to this person, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like, I, oh God, 
so heartbreaking mm. that that happened in your relationship with someone that you loved and trusted. I'm just really moved by that. I think you are doing the work. You know, it sounds to me like you are doing the self-actualization that you need to be doing. And it's a very incremental process. And I think when you're in this place where you are now, which is that you've suffered this massive trauma, like, or you've gone through this massive trauma, I should say, you just think, oh, I'll never be on the other side of this or I'll never be capable again or I'll never feel confident or you get a bit sort of disoriented, I think, about your sense of self. I just want to say you won't always feel like this. It sounds like you're, you are a very clear, articulate person who knows where they want to be and that you're moving in that direction. And it's amazing how when you're on the other side of something, you just look back at it and just think, oh, my God, I can't believe <laughs> that was the same person, that that was me that was in that scenario. And I think we've, to lessering and greater degrees, people, uh, so many people have been through relationship traumas. And I definitely look back at some of my relationships and think, I can't believe I put up with that. Or, mm. uh, you know, I just, I would never do that now. I just can't believe it. And at the time, I didn't have the self belief or the clear-eyedness that it sounds like you now have to step out of those situations. So mm. I guess all I'm offering you is kind of a hope that you will, you know, that you will build yourself back up to again and feel confident about yourself. It is entirely possible. And you do have that within you. It's the frog in the boiling water scenario again, isn't it? That you look back on it and you go, well, how did I not know that I was a frog in boiling water? And that's because the first time you meet someone, they don't put you in a pot of boiling water. It happens slowly. And, uh, well, the first thing I would love to say to this little sister is congratulations. You say that you tried multiple times to leave an abusive husband. Uh, It does take an average of seven times for people experiencing abuse in a relationship to be able to successfully leave that relationship. So I think that you are owed major congratulations and an acknowledgement of how difficult that is and the bravery that you showed in doing that and in being able to establish a life on your terms in a beautiful house that you feel loved and supported in. So I just think that that is so inspiring and amazing. And I really, really hope that anyone listening to this who feels like they can't do that or that it's too difficult to do that or that they've tried and it didn't work, hears that you have been able to succeed and feels stronger and more resilient in the face of their own choices or their own capacity to be able to do that. I also love that you mentioned Lundy Bancroft's book, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men, because Lundy Bancroft's work on that is game-changing and it's one that is frequently cited by women who who have survived uh, abusive relationships and been able to leave as being a turning point for them in being able to recognise the patterns of behaviour that they've been subjected to and recognise the abuse that the man they've been partnered with has chosen to meet out against them. It's interesting because I always, you know, we talk about people experiencing something which is accurate, but I think that it's also really important for us to consciously bring in active language and talk about, I'm so sorry that he chose to do that to you. Mm. I'm so sorry that he subjected you to this by choice because that's really, you can make all the excuses in the world that you want for men, their traumatic histories, their poor mental health, whatever it is. We all make choices every day about how we treat 
everyone in the world and especially the way that we treat people that we love. So I'm sorry that he chose to do that to you and I'm really, really so thrilled for you that you were able to muster the strength despite that to be able to leave him. In terms of how do you become like an individual again, I think that this is one of those things, Ali, that, you know, do you agree that it's not going to be something that you go to bed tonight and you wake up tomorrow and you're like, boom, I'm an individual. It's a practice that once you've left a situation that you felt not even necessarily trapped in, but you thought this is going to be the way that it is for the rest of my life, you have to rediscover who you are. So part of becoming an individual again is getting to know yourself as that individual. But like one of the most basic and yet important things that you can do is sit down and make a list of all the things that you like. What do you like? And not what did you like to do together, but what do you like? Do you like going for a walk in the morning? Do you like sitting on your balcony at four o'clock in the afternoon and having a hot cup of tea and scrolling through Instagram or reading a book or listening to music, whatever it is? It doesn't have to be complicated things. It doesn't have to be like, well, I really love speaking to people in the supermarket. You know, that's actually not that complicated. (laughs) It, It doesn't have to be like, I love going to university and getting my PhD, although that would be cool. It can just be the basic things that oftentimes in abusive relationships, even those things are taken away from people and they don't get to enjoy the basic things that they have enjoyed prior to that. So, they, they, you know, it's understandable that after a long-term relationship, particularly one that's been characterized by a choice of abuse, that you might come out of it and go, well, what do I like? Mm. Who am I? So I think taking some time to sit with yourself and try and answer those questions is really, really important. And then make a practice of doing those things and say, right, I don't have to do every single thing on this list, but I'm going to do three of these things every day. I'm going to sit on my balcony at 4 p.m. and I'm going to listen to music and drink a hot cup of tea. And I'm going to go for a walk in the morning. And then I'm going to go and buy myself a bunch of flowers, whatever it is, you know, start to make choices based on the things that you want that have nothing to do with servicing anyone else's needs or providing anything to anyone else. And use that as an opportunity to reacquaint yourself with who you are. And then you can start to set bigger challenges for yourself. You can say, you know what I've always really wanted to do? So I've always really wanted to learn a language or I've always really wanted to travel to the Northern Territory because travel in Australia is the only place we're <laughs> going to be able to do Yeah. Um, or I've always really wanted to learn about, I'm just looking at a wine bottle on my kitchen bench. I've always really wanted to learn about wine. I mean, me personally, I don't know anything about wine other than that I like to open the bottle and drink it. Establish a list of things that you would love to do by yourself that, again, have nothing to do with servicing the needs of other people and nothing to do with pleasing anyone else. And say, next year, I'm going to do three of those things. I'm going to learn how to speak a language. And I don't have to speak it perfectly, but I'm just going to start learning how to speak a language. I'm going to learn more about wine and I'm going to travel to the Northern Territory. I think that when you set standards like that for yourself or set goals and challenges that are rewarding only to you and are designed to be rewarding only to you, then you actually don't just get to know yourself again, but you get to be really comfortable in your own head and in your own company and you get to like yourself again. And learning to like yourself after an abusive relationship in particular is so important. 
I love that advice, Clem. And I feel like I'm going to do that myself, even though I haven't been recently in an abusive relationship. Like, I just love that practical advice of sitting down and writing down the things that you like doing and then setting yourself these small but achievable goals. Because I think it's really when you achieve things, you do feel a sense of confidence and self-affirmation. And I would say one other thing for this person who's been through this therapy. I just think everyone should Mm. go to therapy. And I know that's a privileged choice and sometimes therapy is expensive. Get the six free or 12 free sessions or whatever it is now from your GP. I mean, I honestly think everyone should go to therapy. So I'm a big advocate. So I would, uh, it sounds like you might already be in therapy because you sound very self-aware, like you're already dealing with some of this stuff and you managed to leave an abusive relationship, which is incredible. So go to therapy, go to No Lights, No Lycra, do some dancing, get in your body, you know, make your list. Mm. Only good things are coming for you. Yeah. The last thing as well that I'll say is in addition to these things is I'm a big fan of having notes up around the house and, you know, people might be derisive towards this again because it's something that women tend to do and maybe it's a white girl thing, I don't know, so there's some (laughs) level of derisive. Oh, you mean white girl list? I have a vision board and really what it is is I've got a cork board that I've put a bunch of things up there, like some of my goals that I want to achieve, some of the things that remind me who I am and my beliefs, pictures of my kid. I've got a picture of myself as a kid up there as well so I can always remember to treat myself with kindness and a list of things that I won't tolerate in a relationship if I ever were to get into one again. Just something that kind of maps what I want my life to look like and my standards for myself and also where I want to go. One of the things I have on on there is a little note that I've written to myself saying most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10, which for me personally is a reminder to think of, you know, like you can take everything year by year and say next year I'm going to do these three things because three is fine, like three is very achievable. And then in 10 years' time, this is what I would love for my life to look like. And I find those things to be really helpful as a single person trying to practice conscious standard setting and boundary setting and making sure that I never slip back into behaviors where I'm compromising myself and my value system for other people, particularly not for men, is to have those little reminders up about the place that other people will think are cheesy or whatever, but that you walk past it and maybe you've got on your wall, little sister, something that says, congratulations you're finally free. And something as simple as that can be a reminder to you every day of exactly Mm. how far you've come and how much further you have to go, but this time just towards your own happiness. Yeah. And I admit that I have also got a post-it or I did have a post-it up in my studio, my writing studio that just said, yes, you can. Mm. Because, you know, there's so often you think, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And then just to have those words in front of you, it's like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Mm. Um, It's so simple. But I think we don't do that enough, like put things outside of ourselves and write them down and visualize them. And it's such a simple thing, but it's really profound. This is for anyone listening as well. If it's not triggering for you to do this, because I understand that for some people it, it would be very triggering. But if you wanted to put photographs of yourself up as a child around the place, as that reminder that not only, like you wouldn't speak to a little child the way that we often speak critically towards ourselves. So a reminder to be kind to yourself, but also a reminder that you deserve love and care and protection and you deserve 
to think that the capacity for greatness that you have in your life still, regardless of how old you are, is vast and that you, as much as anyone else, regardless of what anyone has told you, deserves to go out and chase it, deserves to see yourself as the kind of person who is great and can be great. Yeah. But, you know, congratulations also. And I, I'm so glad that you feel so happy and at ease. And I think that you've done all those important first steps and everything now will just fall into place, you know, continue to set your boundaries and your standards. And I wish you nothing but the best. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it. And if you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Alexandra Collier. She's a writer, a screenwriter, a playwright who has also recently made the incredible decision to embark on life as a soul mother using a sperm donor, which I think is an option that many, many more women should consider. And she's done it so powerfully and written about it so beautifully. Ali, it has been a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been really fun. I come from a medical family who love giving advice. So, and they actually are qualified. So I just got such a thrill out of being able to give unqualified advice. (laughs) Well, you gave such great advice as well. You know, what I love about all of the women who come on the show is that not only do we get to kind of like plumb all of these different experiences and different perspectives, but it's always offered so compassionately and with such beautiful grace and a desire to really, you know, see these people asking these questions feel loved. And that's what this show is all about. It's about love and sisterhood. And uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting looking at your website today was that you have a script under option. I do. Yeah. I have written a show called Inconceivable, which is about a woman who turns 40 and finds out her fertility is fucked and decides to risk her ambitions and her relationships and her love of cigarettes to have a baby on her own using a sperm donor. Not that it's got anything to do with my life. Um, And so, yeah, that's um, a half hour comedy that I've written that has been optioned by a company in Sydney called Rev Lover. So he's praying that it one day gets made. That's amazing because I definitely want to watch that show. Oh, thanks. I will link in the liner notes of this episode as well. I will link your article in The Good Weekend so people can read that. It's really beautiful. I cried a lot during it and it made me feel incredibly hopeful for what possibilities may be out there for women who do want to have children but who feel trapped by this kind of ridiculous, archaic sort of notion of the nuclear family that does not serve any of us. Ali, thank you so much once again for being on the show. Thank you. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. 
the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 